as we end this year and look to next year, let's talk about growing old. How about that? That'd be fun. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes talks about. Now, Ecclesiastes, that's a very interesting book, uh, to say the least. And um, this is an oversimplification, but in some ways, I've heard someone say, and I tend to agree, in some ways, Ecclesiastes is a picture of what life is like if you take Jesus out, all right? If you sort of cut out Christ and remove him, because Ecclesiastes is, is somewhat... Um, can be very honest and painful about the nature of life, all right? And so when you read it many times, you see that. And you're going to see it here in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 as, as the writer begins to talk a little bit about growing old and aged and what that truly means, all right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this year you've given us, the year we've been together as a church, and we look forward, Lord, to what you would have in store for us next year. But in the few minutes we have here this morning to look at your word, make it plain and clear in our lives. We do pray for our missionaries in all of those countries who spent Christmas away from their family and their extended family, and for their families here at home who didn't get to spend time with their grandchildren because they're serving you in some very difficult and challenging places. And so give them an extra portion of your grace and your love, even in these days. And Lord, as they've sacrificially given so much to serve you there, may we sacrificially give to support them. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just read this to you so you'll have some background. Ecclesiastes contains reflections of an old man, the preacher, as he is considering the questions and the meaning of life. He looked back and saw that the vanity of chasing after even the good things in life can include wisdom, work, pleasure, wealth. Even if such things are satisfying for a time, death is certain to end this satisfaction. Isn't that joyful? But he's reflecting back on life. And even if those things that may bring some satisfaction, death is always hanging out there. In fact, God's judgment on Adam for his sin echoes throughout the entire book. Yet the person who lives in the fear of the Lord can enjoy good gifts. Young people especially should remember their creator while they still have their whole lives before them. Traditionally, biblical scholars and interpreters of Ecclesiastes have identified the preacher, who is also called the son of the King David in Jerusalem, as Solomon. But whatever... Solomon or whoever the preacher is, he's looking back. And again, he, he understands that so much of, of what we experience is because of the fall of Adam, the sin we live in. And there is a sense and a glimmer that something else is out there. But again, in Ecclesiastes, it's almost as if he's looking at life and there is, there's just not much hope there. And we can sense that in some of these things. And so look with me at chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes. For very familiar, there's probably the most familiar verse in all of Ecclesiastes is 12.1, Ecclesiastes 12.1. You may not know very many other verses in Ecclesiastes, but 12.1 you probably do know. Remember the Lord in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Remember the Lord in your days of youth before the evil days come. And the days, the years draw near, and you say, I have no pleasure 
in them. This is an old man looking back on his life. He's basically saying, I wish I had followed God more in my youth. I wish I hadn't wasted all of those years because now I am in, he calls them the evil days. These are evil days for him. And not only the evil days for him, but he says, and the years draw near of which you'll say, I actually find no pleasure at all in them. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but as you grow older, do you ever feel like that? Do you feel like the best days are behind me? And all I've got to look forward to is more arthritis, more doctor's visits, poorer eyesight, less time with my children, perhaps being a primary caregiver to my loved one, perhaps actually having to bury my spouse and sleep alone in these last few years of my life, and eventually having to leave my home and go to a nursing center or a care center and be with people I don't know. And I mean, am I getting through to you? I mean, we're in 20. 2016, 20, excuse me, 2020, 2019, 2020, whatever this is, we're in these years. He is way before the birth of Christ, and he's a very human person, and he's experiencing the challenges and, and the adversity and the reality that old age brings very little happiness. Now, that stands in contrast to what we try to see on television where they try to make it look like growing older is the best thing that's ever going to happen to you. If you just plan financially and get all the facelifts and do Bowflex and everything else, you'll just live to be 200 and be great. We know that's not true. It plays into our desires, and we want to do everything we can to stay younger and look younger and act younger and be younger. Why? Because we are fearful. We know because the writer of Ecclesiastes has said, these are evil days. And it's not long before I'm going to find no pleasure in them. So the first thing, first, he's warning those of you who are not yet whatever we call old, old is, it's not going to be like this forever. You need to make sure you take advantage of these days in your youth when you have vitality and strength and stamina and don't waste them because you can't get them back. And that's another sermon for another day, but it's an important message for us to hear. But then not only does he say these are evil days, but then, <laughs> I, you know, he describes them. He's obviously thought a lot about this, all right? And so he describes these evil days. Verse 2. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars were darkened and the clouds returned after the rain, and the day when the keepers of the house trembled and the strong man are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. When the keepers of the house trembled. He's talking here really about the hands. Those are the ones that keep the house. When the hands begin to shake and tremble, you know, and you can't do what you used to do, and they're weak, and you don't have the, you know, perhaps you were, you just can't do what you used to do with your hands. I, I've talked to some men who were, who were surgeons, and they just can't do that anymore. Or you were a mechanic, and you just can't do that anymore. Or you like to do needlework, and you find it hard to do that. Or you like to play a musical instrument in the hands, whether it's arthritis or, or whatever it might be, and you begin to tra- shake and tremble. They just don't do what they used to do. And that's what he's talking about. And the strong men are bent. Those are the legs. They're now bent and weak. 
And the grinders cease. Well, we have dentures. That helps a little bit. But in his day, they didn't have dentures. So you couldn't enjoy some of the great food of your youth. You couldn't eat delicious apples. You couldn't have delicious meat. You, the grinders were ceasing, and you, you had to be limited in what you could eat. Plus, just the pain of, of tooth decay and tooth loss would have been tremendous without anything to take the pain away from that. And the windows are dimmed. <laughs> That's cataracts and <laughs> other things. You don't see as well. You know, I look around, all of us in this room just about above the age of 50 are going to wear reading glasses, right? And most of us wear contacts and glasses. And so, you know, he's talking here about the fact that your eyesight begins to go bad. Do you ever think about everything that begins to go wrong when you get old? And we cover up a lot of it, I mean, because we can have dentures, and that keeps our teeth going. We can have great you can have LASIK surgery. You can have contacts or you can get glasses like I do, and you can keep doing that. We can have hearing aids. That helps, you know, and, and in terms of needing strong men and strong arms, we got all kinds of, of, of mechanical devices now to do for us what we used to couldn't do. I mean, you know, I probably, after falling down the steps, my sons thought that they might want to give me one of those stair glides for Christmas next year, so we go up and go down, you know. I mean, there's certain ways we can there's certain ways we can we can put it off and push it off and accommodate it, right? That that that, that the writer of Ecclesiastes couldn't do in his day, but eventually, it still isn't going to work. It's okay to try to make the most of every day. It's okay to try to improve the quality of your life. It's okay to try to make your life easier. It's okay to certainly go to the doctor and try to get all the medications you can to help. With your, your challenges, your difficulties, extend your life. I believe all those medications are things that God has given us in this time frame. He's chosen for us to live in a time when, you know, basically even my own two parents would have, would have passed away 20, 25 years prior to their death if they had lived 100 years ago. My dad had heart bypass surgery and my mother had, had a cancer surgery. And both of them would have not have lived but they lived 20, 25 years after those experiences. So that was a healing that God, by his grace, provided through medic- medication and medical people. And, but eventually, they still died. And we're all going to. And he describes it. And, and he's talking here about the fall. This is not just like, man, creation's pretty lame. No, it wasn't supposed to be this way. This is a result of sin. When holy God placed Adam and Eve in the garden and he said, it's all yours. Not only is it all yours, but I am all yours. And you and I are going to have sweet and wonderful, unbelievable fellowship. I give you myself. But there's one tree you shouldn't, you cannot And if you do, the wages of sin is death. And Adam and Eve ate of it. And so have you and I, each and every one of us. First of all, that sin got into our DNA, and we are inclined and born into sin, a fallen condition. By one man, Adam, sin entered the world. By one man, Jesus Christ, it was cured. But all of us individually have looked at God and said, yeah, I know you told me that the wages of sin is death, but I'm going to lie anyway. I'm going to be prideful anyway. I'm going to, you just fill in the blank, and one sin is enough. Because God is holy, holy, holy and cannot look upon or tolerate sin or he ceases to be holy. 
we want to make it right. We want to make it sort of relational and rational. And, you know, God loves everybody. Nobody's going to go to hell and everybody's going to get to heaven eventually because God is really great. And I've told you before, if, if someone did something terrible to one of your children, something unthinkable, and the police had a video of them doing it to your child and arrested them and brought them before the judge. And the, the prosecution said, this is a video of this individual doing this terrible thing to this mother's and, and, and father's child. They need to be put away for the rest of their life. And the defense stands up and says, well, you know, judge, everybody does bad things. And the judge goes, yeah, you're right. He can go home. Get over it. That's a, that is not a just judge. God is a just judge, and he must judge sin or he's not just. And so the wages of sin is death. And some of us think, well, you know, that's pretty harsh. But he, look, he didn't, he, did, he didn't immediately kill Adam and Eve. He sent them out of the garden. He said, your life is going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. Not going to be impossible. He clothed them. He clothed them in, in, in animal skins. He still connected to them. He still sought them out. He, he still cared for them. And eventually... They'll be in heaven where it will all be right as they follow and trust him. But it's going to be difficult, this life is. And so when, when, you have, when you are aging and when you have health problems and when death is ever before us, as the writer, the preacher in Ecclesiastes is so abundantly clear, this all has to do with the fall of man. It's an evidence of that. One day... We'll talk about this before we leave this morning. One day it'll all be taken care of, but that day is not today. So as the writer talks about growing old, he says the windows are dimmed. You can't see like you used to see. And the doors on the street are shut. You just can't move and go out like you used to, right? I mean, when you were younger, you could go anywhere night or day, right? You get older, what do you think about? I'm not sure I should be driving at night, right? I'm not sure I should be driving in that kind of weather, right? When you were 21, you never thought about that. It's going to snow six feet, great. Let's, let's go. We can head out. There's no problem. You get to be my age, and it looks like it's going to rain. We better stay in. Just better. Can't, the, the, the doors are shut. I like this one. And one rises at the sound of a bird. You know, when you get to be our age, one of the first things you ask each other when you wake up in the morning is what? How would you sleep last night? I mean, when you're 16, you don't ask anybody that. And you just sleep like a log, right? I mean, you can't even get up in the morning. But when you're our age, you wake at the sound of a bird. You can't. And we know there's scientific reasons for that. The melatonin isn't produced in your body the way it used to. And you just don't sleep the way you do. If you don't sleep like you used to sleep, your body doesn't regenerate like it used to, and it's not good for you, and losing sleep. And that's why some of you wear CPAPs and everything else, because you don't sleep like you used to. How about this? In verse 5, this is really powerful. They are also afraid of what is high. Isn't that amazing? When you have, we have all these grandchildren at our house this week, you watch it on Facebook, I had a, a grandchildren and in the, some adopted kind of grandchildren we have that just are with us. And so, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 of them, who knows. But anyway, um, they are not afraid of heights, all right? 
You got a two-year-old, we got a two-year-old, we got a stairway in our house. She could care less about that stairway, right? She is not afraid of heights because, I mean, she will just take off down that stairway like, oh, my goodness. And jumping off of things, they'll jump off a couch, they'll jump off a bed, they'll jump off anything they can jump off of, right? Doesn't matter. Not you get to be our age, you go, is that a curb there? <laughs> be careful, Dad. Watch that step. Watch out for that step. Why? Well, because we've lived long enough and we know that one bad step, you'll break a hip. You break a hip, you're going to go into a care center. You go into a care center, you may not come out. So you're pretty scared about that step. Isn't it amazing? Hundreds of years before Christ, 2,000 years ago, the the preacher of Ecclesiastes describes very much in detail what it's like. To grow old. And he goes on. And at the end of it, he says, And the dust returns, verse 7, And the dust returns to the earth as it was. But then there is a bit of hope, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Even in, the, even in sort of the darkness of Ecclesiastes, where he's very frank about life, he always understands there at the end, there is a hope there. It's not real clear to him what it is just yet, but it's there, all right? It's there. But that doesn't negate for him the experiences he's going through right now. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. And then eight, vanity of vanity, says the preacher. It's all vanity. At the end of the day, the spirit does go to heaven, but... The rest of this is just, he's just tired. He's just seen it all. Don't raise your hand. But do you ever feel like that? I don't want to go to another doctor. I don't want to have another test. I don't want to hear another bad word about one of my children or my grandchildren. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to watch the news anymore. I don't want to know about another. I just, I'm just tired. It's all vanity. When is this going to end? And again, I think Ecclesiastes is sort of life when you remove Christ from it. I mean, it's just like, where is Jesus in this? Well, for the writer, there is a bit that glimmer of hope that in the end, we do go to heaven. There is a, but right now, it's just all vanity. And I, I would suggest to you that one of the reasons we are so caught up in our culture with wanting to have experiences is that we understand the reality of this and we just want to be numbed to it for a while. Don't get me wrong. Do not get me wrong. Do not hear what I am not saying. It's fine to go to Disney World. Right? It's fine. If you ever want to take me, I'll go with you. My wife and I went to Epcot a couple years ago all by ourselves. I suggest if you're adults, you go by yourself. It's a whole different experience. But how can you, how can, how, what, when you're talking about cruises and you're talking about Disney World, you're talking about theme parks like, 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 like Universal Studios. And then I saw, the reason I brought this up is I saw yesterday on social media that they actually had to quit selling tickets at Disneyland in Anaheim yesterday about 11 in the morning because the park was actually filled up. That doesn't happen terribly often, but it, they couldn't bring any more people in. Now, I don't know about you, but it costs like more than a buck to get to Disneyland, all right? It's not cheap. And so here you got this thing. It's very expensive, and 
by 11 o'clock, they got to say, turn people away. What is it about Disneyland? What is it about Disney World? What is it about cruising? What is it about about, uh, theme parks and, and like Universal Studios and MGM Studios and all those? What is it? Silver Dollar City. My wife and I went there a couple years ago at Christmas time, and they might as well close it. You couldn't walk around. I mean, it was just shoulder to shoulder. What is it about that? We all want some experience, something to momentarily help us forget what the writer of Ecclesiastes is reminding us of, right? For a couple of weeks, I can forget all of this, and I can be on a cruise, For a couple of days, we can live in a fantasy world in Disneyland or Disney World. And for a couple of days, we can kind of put it all aside. And there's nothing nothing wrong with that. But at the end of the day, we're back to where the writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, is because we come home and we go, you know what? I still got this job. still got this dysfunctional marriage. I still got these physical ailments that are bothering me. It's all really... And now I've got to have to figure out how I'm going to pay for all this. It's all really just vanity. It didn't. I mean, it's okay. Yeah, the memories you make. My, I went to Disneyland. My, my parents made great memories, got great pictures. Again, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But that's not going to, that's not going to solve anything in your life. It's long-term, it's not going to change the trajectory of your life. You know what I'm saying? It's not going to make your eyesight come back. It's not going to make your health come back. It's not going to make your marriage great. It's not going to give you purpose in life. And you'll end up by saying it's vanity. And that's why we have such a rapid increase in suicide and a rapid increase in drug addiction and painkiller addiction and illicit sexual relationships and illicit pornography. Because all of that is just a way of, it's all, if it's all pointless, what difference does it make anyway? And that's where the writer of Ecclesiastes finds himself. So, there he is, the preacher. And he does say, one day this, but, this, this, this body will turn back to dust, but the spirit is going to go to God. There, there is, even in him, there's, there's ultimately hope there. But let's contrast him with another old preacher found in the New Testament. So turn to Philippians chapter 4. And this old preacher is in a prison when he writes this. He's in a Roman prison getting ready to be executed. This old preacher, Paul, five times in his life had his cloak removed and five times they took cat of nine tails, a whip with nine lashes on it, sometimes with little rocks and things put in those lashes. Considered many times 40 lashes might kill a person. Five times for preaching the gospel and being a missionary. This Roman citizen, he had a certain number of rights as a Roman citizen, but they seemingly were always ignored by the Roman authorities. Five times he was beaten with 39 lashes. So that if you looked at his back, it would have been nothing but a mass of scars up and down the back with no stitches back in those days, no antibiotic cream. It just had to heal on its own. You can't imagine what his back must have looked like. And you've heard me say before, remember they, 
They stoned him. They threw rocks at him until he was unconscious and in a coma. Probably stripped all of his clothes off and put him out on the heap of dead bodies outside of town. And when he came through, he woke up and went back in town and started preaching again. He was shipwrecked. He was snake bitten. I mean, you want to go over and over all the things. How many times he spent nights in jail. And yet, his view of the world is very different than the view of the world of the preacher in Ecclesiastes. They're both growing older. And if the preacher in Ecclesiastes, as most biblical scholars believe, is Solomon, well, he's a king. <laughs> now, he had some issues, but he's still a king. And he had lived in a palace. He wasn't beaten with 39 lashes, and he wasn't in a Roman prison. And yet he says, look, it's all vanity. You know, this is just getting older, and eyesight's going, and, uh, you know, we're, I know one day I go to heaven, but right now this just, this just seems pointless. I want you to know most of us, I think, at times identify, unfortunately, more with the preacher in Ecclesiastes than the prisoner in the Roman prison. Listen to what Paul writes, his view of life, as we see here. Verse 4 of chapter 4. I want you to rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Be thankful for God, and don't forget to thank him for his answers. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellent, if there's any worthy of praise, think on these things. How different is that than the writer of Ecclesiastes? He's thinking on fear of heights, the grinder cease, I can't sleep at night, I'm just going to get worse, I'm going to die. Paul says, brothers, let me tell you what, as he sits there in a Roman prison, probably nearly blinded, because remember he, had, he said, I'm writing this in my own hand, probably near, attacked by some thorn in the flesh, which we don't know what it was, and ready to be executed at any minute. He goes, brothers, let me tell you what, let's think on these things, things that are lovely, things that are commendable, things that are excellent, things that are worthy of praise. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And what will happen? Peace of God. Not, listen, not one day in heaven, which the writer of Ecclesiastes says, but Paul, speaking in a prison, says the peace of God is with you now. Now. See, we believe that the only way we can really be happy is if somehow or another we no longer have arthritis. We no longer have cancer. We no longer are alone away from our spouse who passed away and left us alone. That's where the writer of Ecclesiastes was. Paul is saying, no, there's a different joy that we have access to that's not dependent on any of those things. Verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. And I love what he says here. You were indeed concerned for me but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need. Verse, listen to verse 11. For I have learned. Now, if you underline in your Bible, underline, highlight, whatever you do, make that word jump off the page. 
Because what we're going to talk about here as we, as we land this thing is a learned behavior that Paul had. Sometimes it pleases God to change us instantly. I've talked to people who were alcoholics and they repented of their sin and they were born again and they'll tell you, I never needed a drink again. That's great. God did that. I've talked to other people who are alcoholics. They are redeemed and they struggle with it and they come and they go and they have to battle it. It's a learned behavior. And Paul here isn't saying, you know, the day I became a Christian, this changed. He's saying, look, I've been through a lot, all right? And I have learned, I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. Wow. Wouldn't you want to be like that? Because then you have no fear. I have no fear. I've learned if I have cancer, I can be content. I've learned if I become an invalid and can't get out of my house, I can be content. I've learned if my children have to come take me out of my house and put me in a care center, I can be content. I've learned if my children pack up and move to the other side of the world and I don't get to see them very often, I'll miss them. I can be content. Paul said, I have learned in whatever. There's no no qualifier to that. There's no limit to that. I've learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. He knows how to be brought low. He knows how to be brought low better than any of us know how to be brought low. I just listed him for you. I know how to be beaten with an inch of my life five times. I know how to be thrown into prison when it was illegal to throw me in prison. I know how to have the people that I trusted turn on me and not trust me anymore. I know what it's like to try to sneak out of a city over a wall at night. I I know what it's like to be hungry and be alone. I know what it's like to not know. I know what it's like to have to go back to work and make tents for a living. Even though I serve the most high God, I still got to use my hands and make some money because I got bills to pay. Do you ever think about that? I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And look at this. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty. Listen, sometimes it's hard to have plenty. You have plenty, you don't need God anymore. You don't want to come to church, you don't really care. I mean, you're in a great... Paul understands that there's a danger in having a lot. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. And then maybe the most misunderstood verse in all of the Bible. Oh, please, if you've zoned out, tune in for a minute or two, all right? I cannot run a four-minute mile, even in my prime. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I cannot run a four-minute mile. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can't slam dunk a basketball. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. You fill in the blank. It's not some stupid thing we put on a bumper sticker and say, I can do all things like, 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 like God is some kind of a genie, and we rub the bottle, we get whatever we want. That verse, check it out, is in context to what Paul just talked about. 
How do I find contentment when I'm in prison? How do I find contentment when I'm beaten 39 lashes? How do I find contentment when I'm about to be hauled off and executed? I can do it through Christ who strengthens me. The all things he's talking about is describing what he just described to you. He's not saying if you just wish hard enough and think hard enough, you can do anything that you want to do through Jesus. That is not what he's saying. He's saying, I've learned to be content, whether I have a lot or nothing, whether I'm brought low. I mean, you fill in the blank. You just look at his life. He said, I, don't, I've been, I am totally content. And you immediately go, how do you learn that? How do you know that? I want that. And he answers it when he says, I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. You want to know the difference between Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and Philippians chapter 4? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Right? Ecclesiastes knows there's a heaven. Eventually I'll get there. But right now, this life is bad. And it's only going to get worse. We can look at him and go, yeah, you're right. Paul goes, you know what? It's not bad. It's glorious. I love being here in this prison. I love singing at midnight. And these scars on my back, man, they are, they are there because of the gospel. And I wear them proudly. And I fellowship with Jesus in his suffering. And I've learned. It's not something he happened overnight. He's saying, I've learned in a lifetime to be totally content. How? Not because I've got some kind of mind game I'm playing. Not because I'm meditating. Not because I take any kind of hallucinogenic drug. Not because I, because of Jesus Christ. Because he is my focus. He is my joy. He is my love. He will never leave me or forsake me. He is a bro- he's one who sticks closer than a brother. He has promised to always be with me. His peace is given to me, a peace the world can't give and a peace the world can't take away. And here's the real key to anxiety, and I'm preaching to myself as much as to you. The reason you and I worry about things so much is that they haven't happened yet. And so we haven't received the grace to deal with them because we don't need it because it hasn't happened yet. So if we sit around and worry about what happens if I lose my health, what happens if I have cancer, what happens if I have to leave my home, what happens if my wife does pass away? Well, when that time comes, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, grace will be made to you at the moment you need it, but probably not a day before. And so just trust that Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. He'll run to you in your time of hurt. And finally, brothers and sisters, that's why we need a church. People go, why do we need all these churches all over the place? Oh, please. First of all, it was God's design and desire for the local church to be his bride on this earth. But we need all these local expressions because we need groups of people who will come around us when we do lose a loved one when we do have to have a surgery, when we are facing a terminal disease, when we do lose our job, it is oftentimes through the members of the local body that come around us and love us and serve us and bring us meals and take care of us and minister to us that we really feel the presence of God in an amazing way. We need each other in the church. It's the bride of Christ. God gave us this wonderful gift. And yes, we got churches all over, but that's great. That means there are communities of faith all over who are caring for one another. Some of them communities of 30 people. Some of them communities of 5,000 people. 
But even in those communities of 5,000 people, they are broken off into smaller groups, home groups, cell groups, Sunday school groups, whatever, where people care for one another. And even Paul, as he's writing this, he's writing to believers who are caring for him. And he's acknowledging how much he appreciates their care. And no doubt part of what the comfort that he feels from Jesus is, is he's experiencing through these people who are caring for him even while he's in prison. Remember, we, as we concluded the, 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 the Ephesians, we, Paul, he, he, he pulls those folks around him and he says, you know, here, here are my friends. And, and he lists them and how powerfully important they are in his life. Well, listen, this morning, Satan wants you to face life without Jesus. And if you're facing life without the realized presence of the risen Lord, you're going to be like the preacher of Ecclesiastes. You, you may, if you're a Christian, you may say, yeah, I'm going to heaven, but right now I can't find any joy anywhere. But you can learn to be like Paul and say, it is through Jesus Christ that I can do these things. Can I run a four-minute mile? Absolutely not. Can I endure it if, if the person I love most passes away before me? Absolutely. Because the grace of Christ will sustain me in that. Doesn't mean I won't cry. Doesn't mean I won't weep. Well, it doesn't mean I won't be sorrowful. But as the scripture says, my, my sorrow will not be as those who don't have faith. My mourning is informed by the resurrection. My grief is informed by a hope of a greater future. I can do those things that Jesus, whatever, listen, what that really means is whatever comes my way, whatever God in his sovereignty determines to bring my way, I can do it all through Jesus. That's what that verse means. Paul says, how did I learn all this? Through Jesus Christ. I can do it all through him. I can do it in my own strength. I can do it in my own power. I be just like the preacher in Ecclesiastes, but I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to look to Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of my faith.